0: So good to be with you guys this morning. I am the youth pastor here, and I'm so excited to have the honor and privilege to stand before you this morning. Uh, God has been moving at this place. God has been doing a work here, and this message this morning is something that has has been brewing on my heart for some time now and has been confirmed by several prophetic words that have been given to pastor and and different ones over the time, and if you would uh, look at the outline. It's on the greatest commandment, but of course that's how we're to live all of our lives, right? We're, we're to love the Lord and to love our neighbor. Specifically, this message today is, is for the church, but how specifically do we as a church in this technologically advanced social age of, of advancing technologies and social media and, and so many different things, how do we actually be an Acts church? We strive to be like the early church, and this morning I'd I like to challenge you along those lines. Uh, if if you would, uh, Kristen's going to play a video. This is something just kind of set your mind on where, where the world says we're going. Uh, in youth, this past Wednesday, several of the youth were aware that uh, Stephen Hawking passed away this past week. Um, we know that Billy Graham passed away, uh, you know, even before that. But in some ways, you see such polar opposites um, of, of kind of what these men stand for, and it this gentleman on this video here is, is another kind of voice along the lines of a hawking, and it's just a little two and a half minute video, but you know, this is kind of projections of, of where we're heading as a society.
1: We're going to be entering the post-Silicon era, and there could be massive disruption. Who wants to buy a computer anymore, knowing it's the same as last year's model? Silicon Valley the envy of nations around the world. Silicon Valley could become a rust belt. Think of that, unemployment, devastation, people out of work in Silicon Valley. Why? This is a computer chip designed to emulate how the human brain thinks, which IBM successfully developed and revealed to the world. In the future, wearing a similar device, you might be able to access the unlimited knowledge of the Internet directly into your brain. In the future, with a combination of robotic enhancements and genetic engineering, you might have a perfect body. There's room to debate precisely when this will happen, but such a world is coming. Okay, I'm a big fan of John Scalzi, a sci-fi author. I just read his Old Man's War, in which geriatrics or aging population can transplant their consciousness into a whole new engineered body. Now, is that something you think is plausible, and could we achieve immortality that way? Well, digital immortality is something that is very doable. In the future, when you go to the library, instead of taking a book out about Winston Churchill you will talk to Winston Churchill. You'll see a holographic image with all his memories, his, his videos, his writings, his speeches. And one day we could be digitized too so that our great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren will go to the library to talk to their great-great-great-great-great- great, 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 great illustrious a grandmother. Because we have been digitized. And so it's possible that we could be put into an avatar, a mechanical avatar with the power of a Superman that can breathe under her planet, survive in weightlessness, and we could explore the universe with these immortal avatars. Wow. And once we achieve that, maybe even before that, it's time to start debating the ethics of trying to achieve those things and which ones we want to choose. We are kind of out of time. That's another interview for you. That's another best-selling book. I do <laughs> want to let folks know that people can get you to sign their books if they go to uh, Kepler's tonight at 7.30, right, at the San Mateo Performing Arts That's Center right. in San Mateo. You will be speaking. That's at 7.30. Could we achieve immortality that way? Immortality, immortality that way.
0: So you hear the agenda of the world. Um, How many of you know that existing in a library is not immortality as we know it? Uh, And for the sake of this message, I got my physical Bible this morning and my iPhone is in the sound booth, nicely nicely tucked away. But we're in this age where things are advancing so quickly technologically. And this morning I'm, I'm preaching on relationships. And as much as the social age gives us access to so much more than we have ever had, we can find out what's happening around the world in an instant, it also does something in the sense of our relationships that I think often goes unnoticed, and especially the younger generation is is missing this. The social age is actually somewhat antisocial. Never before has life been more connected, but also busy, lonely, and isolated. Years ago, I was born in 1989, but years before the social age, I used to love when the lights would go out. I used to love when we'd have the old-timey gas lamp going and play some board games with the family. Now, granted, you know, with Hurricane Fran or certain things, if you have weeks without power, you know, obviously this is not something that we look forward to, but even as a child, I enjoyed time with family, disconnected from the TV and, and what have you. I have no idea how to relate to what kids are going through today as they grow up, and and we're immersed in this culture. So with that being the case, just a few stats. Since the past 10 years, a lot of things have changed. Obviously, the world is much different, but John Hopkins did a study, and depression, clinical depression, has actually increased by 37% over the past decade. Suicide is now the highest it's been since 1950 and has steadily been rising since 2007. Oftentimes, we talk of millennials and different things. We, we assume that the youth are the ones that we're, you know, really talking about here. But, Kristen, if you put up the Instagram slide, there was a peer research post that actually says, and this is for Facebook or anything, but adults age 35 to 49, so anyone under 50, basically, these adults above 35 are spending six, almost seven hours, just under seven hours, on social media each week, which is actually 40 minutes more than millennials. And as you see here, this is 35% of U.S. adults now that actually use Instagram. This is kind of the newest of the social media uh, networks and something that I honestly am not even all that familiar with. I I have an account, but it's the trendy, you know, newer one. But now, even now, 35% of U.S. adults actually have this. So we are more and more becoming inundated in the society that we have access now to so much more than we've ever had but we as the church must be extremely intentional about how we live our lives. Obviously, at some point, you may have to unplug from certain things the world may offer you, but as we are in this moment in time, we have to be extremely specific about how we're going to live as the church. As you look at your outline, when we think about the early church, relationships were absolutely implicit. We think about Acts Church as being a power-packed church, a church that was filled with the Holy Spirit. But not only that, it was a church that did community together. Today, things are obviously a lot different. And really, it's not something that's just happened overnight. Ever since Constantine came in and created this official state religion, as we know it is, is the Western church, the persecution level, especially that we have faced, is a lot different than the older church. And with the lack of persecution, you see much change in the church. You see cultural norms shaping the church. Sometimes that's okay, and sometimes we have to be very, very careful. So how do we today specifically remain in the world and not of the world, and as a kingdom-minded community of Christ, actually reach forward into what God has for us today? If you would flip to John 17, And as we look at the church vision and mission, I'm going to try to speak to us individually, specifically about us as a collective body here at Bethel Christian Center. If you've been on our website or you've seen the screen in the hallway, you've seen the vision and mission statement of the church, transforming lives through Christ, that's to exalt, encourage, equip, and evangelize But how does one specifically transform lives through Christ? I mean, how how do we see this play out in our context? And this sermon is titled The Greatest Commandment because that's really how we're to live our entire lives. Christ said this was the greatest commandment. And by that standard, that's how we're to live and walk in every aspect of our lives. Before we dive in this morning, would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for what you're doing, Lord, today in this place. God, I pray, Lord, as we look at your word, Lord, as we, God, seek specifically, Lord, what the Spirit is doing in this place today. God, would you, God, allow our heart, Lord, to be soft and malleable, Lord, to what you're doing, Lord, in this place. God, may you, God, expose things in our own lives, Lord, where we're holding back from you. God, may you show us, Lord, God, the areas in our life where we can have margin, where we can find time to call away, to get with you, Lord, to get with our brothers, Lord, the things that you're calling us to, Lord, the good things. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for the word you've given us, God, and may you reveal your truth through it. In Jesus' mighty name. So this idea of transforming lives through Christ is a vision that this church has. And specifically, we know that as we love God, we're loving Yahweh, he's personally identified himself as Yahweh, but he's also revealed himself through the character and the specific man, Jesus Christ. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we know from the Old Testament, we know these two main commandments of loving the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and soul. And we know that we're to love our neighbor. It talks about that in Leviticus, and Christ has said, this is the second And so these commandments kind of dovetail together, okay? And this morning, I want you to think about all these things and and to know that anything we talk about in the church today is consistent with Scripture. 1 John 3 and 23 speaks of the fact that this commandment that we're speaking of in Jesus Christ is not a new commandment, but the commandment that has been known from the very beginning. So Scripture is consistent in its revelation. So how do we as a church in this modern culture express that? So specifically, my outline this morning is broken down into the mission of the church, to exalt, to encourage, to equip and evangelize. So this morning, as we look at John 17, let's allow God to be exalted through his holy word. John 17, verse 1 says, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. This is the time where Christ has come to the end of his life before he has been, before he will be arrested, and he prays to the Father. This chapter is powerful, and he's praying to the Father on many behalfs. but you can see the very glory of God evident in this chapter again and again and again. He's saying, the hour has come, Lord, glorify your Son. We know that he would go to the garden and say, if this cup should pass, you know, if there's any way to get around this, Lord, this is going to be very difficult. But yet we still know that he was all about God's will beyond anything else. And in doing so, Christ, we know, was exalted. Verse 2 and on says, And thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee and the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou hast gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Amen. The truth that is in that verse If the world could grasp a hold of what that actually means, there would be no debate of who Jesus was. Jesus was before all, existing with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as he's praying for us as his body of believers, he's saying, for those that you have given me. The Father has given us as his church to Christ. There's so much glory in that. We feel like oftentimes as we're going through our lives, we see this little step here and this step here. And, and it doesn't make sense in the big picture. But as we come to Christ, we literally are stepping into a divine and sovereign plan of God that has been in orchestration from the very beginning of time. That should be something that is encouraging. That should be something that is, gives you more joy and more excitement than anything else we can possibly imagine. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll, we'll, we'll jump back to John a lot. Philippians chapter 2 speaks of the preeminence of Christ in verse 6, where it talks of Christ in this pre-incarnate state, saying, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God? He made himself of no reputation, took upon the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Amen. We serve a God who has been exalted, but he's been exalted because of his example of humility. He reconciled us in relationship back to himself. By saying, yes, I'm in heaven. I'm God the Son. But there's no need to usurp God the Father. Where's the pride and the vain? Where's the benefit in that? Instead, I'm going to take the form of a servant. A servant and become like men, so yet I may redeem God's creation. The pinnacle of creation, made in the image of God, back unto God the Father. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So we see this picture of exaltation through, through humility. But we also, as we talk about the plan of God, as we look at this entire chapter, we see God's will, his sovereignty, and his eternal love expressed again and again. I refer a lot to the Trinity as, as, I'm, as I'm speaking because so much of our understanding of God comes through this idea of relationship. And we, we see God as God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit... God as one, but yet in perfect unity, we see the very core of what relationship is and why it's important. Because even before time, before anything existed, and it was just God, there were still several things. There were love. There were the fruit of the Spirit. There was this harmony amongst the Godhead that now we are being invited in to experience. Amongst God's eternal love, we are now swept up into so when you're here at church and you are worshiping God and you feel overcome by the presence of God and you can't explain there's words that can't express it this is something that has been going on from before the beginning of time and God has decided to welcome us into himself and that's something that is hard for us to put our minds around but yet we know it through scripture we know it through scripture Back to John, chapter seven, or John 17, verse 6. Christ said, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept the word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou, thou hast given me are of thee. Every single thing. Every single thing that we as a church experience is not just because of Jesus Christ, but through this entire picture of God. Because the Father has ordained it and has given it to the Son. And we know not only that, but then he has sent us a comforter to allow these things to activate in our lives. God doesn't override us. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. The Holy Spirit is, is one who allows things to be done in order. And yet is there, willing to give us power and the necessary steps to operate in his will. Verse 8 says, For I have given unto them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out of thee, and they believe that thou hast sent me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all of mine. Are thine, All of thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those who thou hast given me. That they may be one as we are. A lot has been going on in this church and many, many good things. We're, we're actually uh, working through making curriculum changes in the youth and children's departments. And as I was speaking to the brother who's actually a part of our former curriculum, he was talking about how in this, in this chapter it says that we're to be one as the church. And I do think that is, that is so important for us to be one. But we're to know specifically what that means. Christ says here, he didn't pray for the world, but he's praying for the church. And yet he wants his church to be one. Amen. Verse 12 says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Thou, Those that thou hast given me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Speaking of Judas. Now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Again, and you'll see this idea again happening over and over. Anything we experience in this world that is good comes from God. and He speaks about his joy being in us. As Dr. Lee was here, he talked about anything that we do is from Christ. Christ is in us and, and we are in him. And in the same way, when we love one another as we're commanded to love, the only way that we can love is because he's first loved us. He set the gold standard of love. For greater love is no man than this but to lay down his life. And on the cross, that gold standard was set and we know exactly what we're shooting for. Now, of course, all of us are not going to become martyrs and all of us are not going to constantly die for the other in the literal sense. But how are we serving one another? How are we giving up our time, giving up our privilege, our pleasure for the needs of another? This passage is so, so rich, and, and as you get farther and farther into it, it just, it just continues to build. Verse 14 and 15 are, are huge because we talk about this a lot, but word by word being in the world and not of the world, it's not in scripture, but this is where it's found. I have given them thy word and, thy, and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world even as I'm not of the world. I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but thou should keep them from evil. So this is our challenge. Persecution will come, and we see it in some sense here in our culture, but we know that several several of our brothers and sisters around the world experience a much different level of persecution than what we do. Verse 16 says, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The back half of that verse there is so important because when it says thy word is truth, and this is a good thing to, to take down as a note, it doesn't say that your word is true. It says thy word is truth, meaning anything can be true, right? I can say this, this platform is a, is a flat surface that I have three sheets of paper right here. All these things are true. But to say something is truth, That it stands, this this is not talking about something as an adjective or something that's describing something. This is the very essence of truth. This word that we've been given is truth. Therefore, much as the cross is the gold standard of love, the gold standard of truth is this word. And every other thing that we consider in life, we consider it through the lens of scripture. Verse 18 goes on and says, And thou hast sent me into the world, even so I have also sent them into the world. We're to go out. We're to, we're to take part in mission. We're to take part in the communities that God has placed us in. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone. Get this. In okay, case so we are wondering that he's just speaking about the disciples. Verse 20 says, But for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That they all, all that believe, may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The unity of the church is what points towards the world. It indicates to the world that this movement is of God. And the glory which you've given me, I've given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and thou and me, that they may be perfect, made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Last three verses of the passage expresses this love that was found in God the Father and in the Holy Trinity. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have I known that thou hast sent me. Sometimes when we think about God's plan, we, we get frustrated because we're not necessarily always in control. and This is hard for us, but Jesus says, O righteous Father, the world hasn't known thee, but I have, and he calls him righteous. So there has to be this trust factor when it comes to us dealing with God. Finally, he says, I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be with them, and I in them. So this idea this morning of loving God, of being in God, is something so much bigger than than maybe we feel at times. We feel like we get overwhelmed with work, we get overwhelmed with what we have in our life, all the responsibilities that we have to carry out. But God is working out his sovereign love and his sovereign will in all of these things. And each step, each choice that we make to honor him, fulfills part of this great plan. And this idea of trusting God you look at your outlines, we look at the encouragement factor as we encourage one another in the Lord. This encouragement that we have to give comes from really knowing who God is. As we exalt God and we know God's character, then we can say without a shadow of a doubt that he is for us and he's not against us. We can say that he was praying for us, that we may be strong in the work that he's given us, but that we also may know that God loves us. And as we're to be challenged and to be sent out, it's only because God first perfectly loved his children. That he's called us, that he's purposed us. This God is a God that is clearly identified. And I want to make this very clear this morning, because this, this idea of unity that I'm talking about is something that is popular But if we don't know what we're unified around, then we're missing the point. And we won't go into it this morning in depth, but I challenge you to take some time to look at 1 John. Because it is very clear who God is in 1 John. It talks about, and I already talked about this idea of love and this idea of light, but in 1 John it reveals God as love. It reveals him as this picture of light and so anything we're doing like whether you come wednesday night to the barnabas meeting and you want to visit shut-ins you want to visit these kind of things and and be a part of ministries that are doing good works we're doing good works under the banner of christ and it's not for salvation but it's out of the love by which he's already invited us into And in First John, it specifically it even it even speaks of this idea of Antichrist, and it, and identifies anyone who carries that spirit. It says, "Who is a liar, but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. He that acknowledges the Son hath also acknowledged the Father." So this is how we know. This is how we know exactly what we're to be unified around. And this is important for us because we know that we have this unity. But in the sense of the world, the world is all about unity now, right? The acceptance and, and love. And, but how does that play out, right? With this kind of a message, it's hard to, to have just a broad brush unity with everyone. And specifically, even it speaks in the Bible that Christ actually brought division in many ways. We, we see the scriptural passages of the sheep and the goat. We see the wheat and the tares. There's a division that happens. And yet the encouraging thing about it is he still went out of his way to eat with the prostitutes. Because the funny thing about the church is you can't look at someone's actions... And figure out who's in and who's out. Like where the division lies. It's a matter of the heart. And so we see these passages about people being called and all these things. But who is called? We don't know. God knows. And so we work with what God has given us. And go into the highways and byways. And do all that God has given us by his strength. And let God work that out. When it comes to equipping, I actually spoke to Larry's son this week about he and his he and his girlfriend Madison just went to Africa for spring break, and I sent him this testimony and wanted to know if wanted to know if uh, this passage this this test, it's, it's in a this was in a book that I read about written about ten years ago. And it speaks specifically of the Ivory Coast of Africa and spiritual warfare. And we've been talking for over a year now in this church about what God's doing around the world. And we don't always see it here. But I thought this was so interesting. This was written 10 years ago, and I sent it to them. And I was like, you guys just came from Africa. Does this just seem, you know, legitimate? And they said it was right on. It's a story about a pastor by the name of Dion Robert, pastor of a church in the Ivory Ivory Coast, Which is actually a stronghold of a Rosicrucian cult. So this pastor was playing a crusade in a very large, second-largest city in the country, and it required hundreds of church leaders to get on buses and to go three-hour drive on this treacherous mountain road. And right before the event, he actually got a word that the whole event was under a curse and that he should actually consider delaying or canceling the event altogether. They went on, and while the buses were transporting the leaders, a lumber truck lost control and destroyed one of the vehicles, killing all 28 people on board. When the pastor came upon the scene, he actually grieved for an hour or so with the leaders, and they gave instructions to one of the pastors of what to do as he went on, and he proceeded to preach at the crusade. Thousands found Christ at the crusade in the days to follow. An American pastor was there and after the service walked up to him and said, I don't know how you could get up like that and preach after coming through the shock of the deaths of all of these small group leaders. Pastor Dion put his thumb into the chest of the American pastor and said, that's the difference between the kind of Christianity you have in America and the kind we have here. For you, There is black and white and a lot of gray in between. You're so confused about the gray, thinking that some of the events of life do not have to do with the battle of good and evil. But for we Christians in Africa, there is no gray area. There is only the power of God and the presence of Satan and his evil deeds. And if you'll entertain me here, I would like to read this next part of the book because this is ten years ago, and I'll just read it and let you take it as you would. North America is just as much a battlefield as the Ivory Coast. However, the project of Christendom has lulled the Western church into a state of comfort with the so-called Christian culture. We have rock stars that stand in semi-transparent dresses at award ceremonies thanking God for his blessings. We have country music performers who proclaim their allegiance to God and country while singing of things that would make most people blush. We fight for the right to pray before high school sporting events as if this is a manifestation of God's kingdom. We participate in a culture that has been totally inoculated to the gospel. The gospel language is embraced, but the gospel life is quietly set aside. The church does not feel the need to fight because the way is not obviously against the church. Satan's strategy to undermine the Western church has been to quietly and subversively weave the lie into the church's self-understanding that the battle against evil is much smaller in Western culture than it is in countries around the world. This is why I believe that as believers, we're to be really intentional with our time. Last last year, that was our theme. I heard from some that actually, maybe this theme should be, you know, be supernatural or believe supernatural. We just had the powerful conference a few weeks back. But I believe so often that these things go together. I don't think that Peter, as he went to the man and said, laying at the gate and said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have given unto thee, rise up and walk. That didn't haphazardly happen. so we as a church as we go about our lives let's do it intentionally let's do it with the love that God has first given to us and this is not easy and the reason I played the video at the beginning <clears throat> a, lot, a lot of you probably feel like that's probably either A probably a little crazy or irrelevant or you know what's the point the point being It's hard enough as it is with the cell phone in our pocket. It's not going to get any easier to be intentional about who we're with. And use these things for God's kingdom. Use it for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. But yet we have to be intentional about loving one another face-to-face interactions. Specifically speaking about equipping, the scripture that we always look at, talking about the worthy of scripture, the worthiness of scripture, being God-breathed, this kind of instruction goes on to say that the man of God is equipped for every good work. And unfortunately, in our society, everything is so individualized that using Peter Peterson, the author of the message paraphrase, says there's this type of spirituality of narcissism that crops in. Because people get so overwhelmed with this idea of Jesus Christ, this idea of, of this love that they've experienced, that they feel that like they can just go out and, and be with God. They don't need their spouse or their family or their congregation. They can just be with God. Which is, in some ways, it's almost like as we look at the Mosaic Law and we can't understand why this certain rule is here or that, Actually, while I was at Liberty, I was told you have to look at the spirit of those laws and not just the letter of the law. If we just get the gospel and we just have the letter of the gospel and we go around and megaphone our way through life and tell everyone that Christ is king and you're going to hell, and you know, the whole nine yards, we miss the spirit of the gospel. And that's the way that we're called to do life. With spirit and truth. How are we to do this? I'm going to share what Miss Carol told me right as I stepped up here. She says she was worshiping, she just sensed this golden scepter. And she looked it up in the passage in, in Esther where. The king had the golden scepter. The king had it and reached out and she touched it. And she said she had never thought about the fact that what God is doing, you have to reach out and step into that. This last concept of evangelizing, it's kind of a buzzword in our society. It's like, oh, that's old hat, right? We don't don't do that anymore. That's not the case. Under the proper context, your whole life is evangelism. It's not to say that you don't speak to a brother intentionally when the Spirit gives opportunity, but that our whole life is what actually opens those doors. And that the fruit of the Spirit. The love, the joy, the peace, the patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All these things are things that are done in relationship. And as we seek to be a brother and sister in the Lord, there has to be intentionality about how we do that. I've heard that there are some that are already kind of organizing lunch with certain ones and getting people together that wouldn't normally... Get together after church. And these are the kind of things, the intentional workings of the brothers and sisters in Christ that have to be set aside. We, things don't just happen. We have to work and be diligent about what God has given us so that we can be together. <clears throat> James Lee was so right. <laughs> Kristen, if you'd put up the, uh... it might be the last image. You guys, some of you may know the characters uh, here. <laughs> this is a popular show from about 20 or so years ago, and they've someone photoshopped the Seinfeld characters to pieces to have the millennial-type culture. You have to be able to welcome whoever it is, where they're at. And not to say that you adopt the styles or the cultures or whatever, but if there's anything that on the front set that, that our generation, the younger people coming up, are looking for, is a sense of community. It's a sense of togetherness. And the world is showing them that. But we at the church have to be very intentional to make sure that with this revelation that we've been given, the very love of God. That we show them what true community really looks like. And, and I, I know this and <clears throat> bring this message to you this morning. Knowing that this is not just going to change overnight. All of us have to be intentional. It's, I think all of us have things that we get and burdened down and, and tied up. And it was just the day-to-day responsibilities. But I challenge you as we go forward. To really consider your life, not just consider your relationship with God—that's important—but then the outflow of that. In this book that I read, it spoke of this idea of refrigerated rights, and as I was reading it, I, I didn't understand the the concept. But I was talking different once about it, and once it clicked, it made sense. Jesus had Peter, James, and John that he was very close to. He had the disciples that were there, but there was those that he was very, very close to. They were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were with him in different sections that were just very intimate settings. And we have to make sure we have those intimate settings today. And, and not every friend you have is going to come in and have access to your refrigerator and have rights, the refrigerator rights in your house, right? That would be a little weird. But do we have those people that do have refrigerator rights? Are we close enough with anyone that we can say that? If the praise team would come, pastor is going to close us out this morning. But I just challenge you to think about this idea of relationship. To make sure that we're living intentionally. In seminary, there's this phrase that is thrown out somewhat called the ivory tower. In seminaries and professors and different ones, they at times can appear like they're in an ivory tower. That they know everything and they're isolated from everyone else. And it's difficult as the church, because even, I believe, a lot of these professors, they don't mean to come off like that. But as the church, we have to be intentional to the world that we don't come off like that. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation of who you are, Lord. Lord, in the challenge. God, this is a hard message. God, even, even for a... God, maybe he's a millennial who doesn't always consider himself a millennial. This is hard for me. Lord, but your mercies are good. God, your love endures forever. It's been, God, ongoing from the beginning of time and You've invited us into that. God, when you say that you won't leave us forsake us, God, we know that you see the big picture. And sometimes when we get burned down in the moment, God, we just pray for an extra special grace, Lord, to see our lives as you see it. Lord, that our hearts may stay soft, Lord, before you. That we may know, God, what step to take so that, Lord, we may stay on the straight and narrow you've laid out before us. God, I thank you for this community, for the brothers and sisters, God, you've brought together. God, you've called us from the beginning, Lord, and under this banner of love, God, under the name of Christ, God, you are doing a great work in this day. And we pray, Lord, that your kingdom would advance, God, by your power and by your glory, because there's nothing, Lord, any of us can do on our own. But we do thank you, God, that you've called us to this work. We ask, God, that you would equip us. Lord, that as your spirit is moving, Lord God, that we would step out in faith into a greater relationship, Lord, and intimacy with you. God, that we may have power from on high, Lord, that we may be clothed in your righteousness, Lord, to walk out into this world and love as you've loved. We thank you for it. We give you all glory and honor in Jesus' mighty name.